Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, August 11th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. Coronavirus in children is increasing as total U.S. cases rise to more than 5 million. President Trump defined his own experts in predicting a vaccine for later this year, while Russia announces the first vaccine. But is it safe? And communities of color at risk of being undercounted after the Trump administration shortens the window to collect census data. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with this. The planet has now more than 20 million cases of coronavirus. Here in the U.S., the big question is whether children should go back to in-person classes. This after many schools were obligated to close again after just a few days in. Lorraine Casares has more details. The death toll in the U.S. continues to climb and images of large gatherings all over the country continue to go viral, like this party in Utah, hundreds of people in attendance without masks. If everyone else is opening up and, you know, school is going to be open in like a day, we may as well just have a party. The party organizer saying he had permission from the city, but not a permit as it's not required for gatherings of less than a thousand people. If people are going to die, they're going to die. I don't think that they're going to in that way. I think that we're seeing a trajectory go down. Meanwhile, as numbers show, cases of COVID-19 among children are growing exponentially. The heated debate of how to start the school year safely creating legal battles and confusion. In Hartford, Florida, where 42,000 children tested positive for the virus and the positivity rate statewide stands at around 15%, 12 counties are starting in-person classes this week. Thousands of students returning to the classrooms masks encouraged but not required. In terms of the risk to school kids, um, this is lower risk than seasonal influenza. Fourth grade teacher Michael McDaniel showing the challenges of setting up a classroom. I have a very narrow room uh, and so it's a little bit hard to maintain the, the distance. Mississippi, Indiana, North Carolina, and Georgia all started school with in-person classes only to close down days later. In Georgia, the state with the third highest seven-day average of new COVID cases per capita in the country, more than 800 students in Cherokee County are in quarantine due to possible coronavirus exposure. One week after in-person learning began. We are not out of the woods yet, and we cannot take our foot off the gas. I'm asking that all Georgians continue to remain vigilant as we continue this fight. State Representative Beth Moore setting up a hotline urging teachers and students to call and report their worries. I have over 200 emails over the course of less than 48 hours from teachers, students, parents, staff members at school, um, all with really the same message that schools in Georgia are not prepared to go back to face-to-face -face instruction right now. Experts warning of what may happen in the fall. We think we're gonna see an explosion of cases in September that will far surpass what we saw after Memorial Day, and that this is just gonna continue increasing, getting higher and higher in terms of numbers. 
And eyes, all eyes are now on Florida to see how the reopening process of schools for in-person classes will evolve there in the coming days. And even though Florida is seeing the cases trend downward, the state's health department to date recorded the highest number of deaths yet since the pandemic began. Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that live report. Meanwhile, President Trump addressed in a host of issues at yesterday's press briefing, including his latest executive actions, but that conference was interrupted. And Arenares explains how. Good, hopefully soon. Minutes after Monday's press briefing, the president abruptly escorted from the podium. The White House placed on lockdown after shots were fired across the street near Lafayette Square. There was a shooting outside of the White House and seems to be very well under control. There was an actual shooting and uh, somebody's been taken to the hospital. I don't know the condition of the person. It seems that the person was was shot by Secret Service. The president then tackled a number of issues. He first touted a series of controversial executive actions he issued over the weekend after stimulus talks between the White House and lawmakers stalled. A lot of money will be going to a lot of people very quickly. On Saturday, the president authorized an extra $400 in weekly unemployment insurance benefits, a potential financial lifeline for millions of jobless workers. But it could take weeks for people to receive that money. We hope to see it quickly um, and close to immediately. I don't have an exact readout for you on time, but a lot of this will depend on states um, and them applying. Meanwhile, Trump has been sparring with his own party, taking aim at critics of his new executive actions, tweeting that Nebraska Senator Ben Sass is a Republican in name only, saying he has, quote, gone rogue again. This foolishness plays right into the hands of the radical left Dems. Sass tearing into Trump's decision to circumvent stimulus negotiations in Congress, calling the move unconstitutional slop, comparing the actions to President Obama's signing of executive orders after lawmakers could not reach consensus. At the podium, Trump also acknowledged a prospective executive order he's considering to make insurers cover pre-existing conditions, despite the fact coverage is already guaranteed under Obamacare. Just to let people know that the Republicans are totally, uh, strongly in favor of pre-existing condition, taking care of people with pre-existing conditions. And in terms to a coronavirus vaccine. I feel strongly that we will have a vaccine by the end of the year and it'll be put in service maybe even as we get it because we're all set militarily. We're using our military to distribute the vaccine. However, Russia now becoming the first country to officially register a coronavirus vaccine and declare it ready for use. President Vladimir Putin saying that one of his daughters has already been inoculated. He emphasized that the vaccine underwent the necessary test and has proven efficient. However, scientists worry that the rush to start using the vaccine before phase three trials, which normally last for months and involve thousands of people, could backfire. At the press briefing, we also learned that President Trump is planning to postpone the G7 summit for a second time. The event was originally scheduled for June in Camp David. The plan was to postpone it until the fall and switch it to a virtual conference due to the coronavirus. But now Trump says he would like to do it in person, perhaps after the election in November. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News.
Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And now to Washington, where negotiations on a stimulus bill between the House Democrats and the White House remain deadlocked. Edwin Pitti is in D.C. with the latest. Carolina, even though President Trump signed those executive actions over the weekend, it's still unclear when millions of Americans will receive the money they've been waiting for. But according to the Secretary of the Treasury Department, Stephen Mnuchin, he said that it could be one or two weeks until Americans start receiving their first weekly $400 subsidy. But Democrats in the House are saying they don't see that happening anytime soon because according to the memorandum signed by President Trump, it is going to be the responsibility of the state to come up with the structure and the measurements to be able to deliver that money to millions of Americans. And right now, many of them do not have the manpower or the money to come up with a system that could take up to weeks or even months to create. So right now, Carolina, their best bet is to really come together, negotiate, and come up with a bill that could result in longer proposals for help to help a lot of Americans that are suffering right now. Mnuchin is saying that he's willing to go back to Capitol Hill to negotiate with Democrats, but they need to come up with a better proposal. Meanwhile, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is saying that she's willing to compromise, but that the White House needs to increase the price tag of their proposal by at least a trillion dollars, something the Republicans are not supporting at all right now. I can also tell you the Republicans in the Senate are working right now on Capitol Hill. They are in constant communication with the White House. But as far as members of this administration communicating with Democrats in the House, that is not happening at all. So just by that, you can tell that these negotiations are as stuck as they can be. Live in Washington, D.C., Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Edwin Petit, for that report live from Washington, D.C. On Monday night, demonstrators for Black Lives Matter once again took to the streets in Portland, Oregon. Police broke up that protest after they say protesters shined strobe lights at officers and threw eggs and water bottles at them. Nine people were taken into custody when officers suffered a minor injury. Meanwhile, in Seattle, the police chief there, Carmen Best, resigned Monday night. Her announcement comes after the city council cut about $4 million from the police department. Like many major cities, Seattle has endured a summer of demonstrations. The city's mayor said the chief was the right person to manage that crisis. And the police officer in Colorado is facing discipline after posting, quote, killed them all on the live stream of Black Lives Matter protests. Keith Reed is being suspended without pay for five days and removed from his unit. But advocates in Colorado Springs do not think that's enough. The police chief apologized for the comments and said the investigation found the comments were made out of frustration. He also said there was no indication of any physical action or intent to cause any harm. And now to New Jersey. She's one of the best gymnasts in the world, but Lori Hernandez is still taking time to encourage her followers to participate in this coming election. Peggy Carranza has her story. With an Olympic gold medal, a New York Times bestselling book, and the trophy from Dancing with the Stars, gymnast Lori Hernandez knows all too well the importance of speaking up. Especially as a Latina, as a Hispanic community, knowing that we have such, you know, such a big group, we can use our voice and we can change the tide. 
That is why when she turned 18, she voted and now hopes that her more than 2 million followers on social media will do the same in the upcoming presidential election. This understanding that when you vote, you're lending your voice into uh, a multi multitude of other people who are speaking out into making a better future for you, for your parents. The responsibility is huge. About 32 million Latinos are projected to be eligible to vote in November, according to the Pew Research Center. So their vote could be decisive for younger and older generations. With Lori, we taught her the importance of voting, being able to be a change agent, to know that it is her responsibility. Because if I can get this done, the challenge will be to overcome the coronavirus obstacles. In her case, Lori spent the quarantine with her family and is now practicing for the Tokyo Olympics in New Jersey, 2,000 miles from her coaches in California. I'm representing the part of the country that is fighting for everybody to be equal. That's what we're fighting for. Lori hopes to return to California in a few weeks. There she will continue her training and will vote by mail in the presidential elections. In Oldbridge, New Jersey, Peggy Carranza, U News. Thank you, Peggy. And today is being called Action Tuesday on Fusion and our sister network Univision. This year, 32 million Latinos are eligible to participate in the November election. Register to vote directly on our website, univision.com forward slash vote with me. And now, census experts are sounding the alarm after the Trump administration decided to end the count early. There's concern this could lead to a historic undercount of Black and Latino communities. Joining me now is Lisette Escobedo. She's the director of the National Census Program at Naleo Educational Fund. Thank you for your time, Lisette. Thank you for inviting me, Carolina. Nice seeing you again. So happy to see you, Lisette. Now, is the impact of this decision to end the count one month early, what is the impact? It's going to have a huge impact in communities of color, specifically Latino communities. Why? Because we know that the national rate of response right now for the census is about 63%. But when you look at Latino communities like the Rio Grande Valley, like Los Angeles County, and many other communities that are mostly Latino populations, um, the response rates are sometimes below 58%, below 55%. So that means that over the next month, the Census Bureau has to deploy census takers at a huge rate in our communities to make sure that we can make up for those 50% that we still need to count, for the 60% that we still need to count. So we have a lot to lose here. And we also know that Latinos have been mostly affected by that, the pandemic at disproportionate rates, which again, puts us even more at a loss and more at a risk um, at this point in terms of a full count. What are the reasons the administration says it changed this deadline? Um, political reasons, I'll be very honest. Um, initially, the Census Bureau, the Department of Commerce has said we need an extension um, because of the delays of the pandemic. We need to um, an extension so that we can submit redistricting data by April 2021. Um, and then uh, there was a change of heart. I think it was when we started seeing the census be even more politicized, the Bureau, the sorry, the Trump administration came back and said, you know what, never mind. 
let's force the Bureau to finish this count by the end of uh, December 31st, which is when the data would get turned over, so that the data would get turned over before the end um, of, the, of this administration or when this administration, if another administration is elected, would leave office. And so I'll be very blunt in that it, it is purely for political and partisan purposes. And he said, what are the deadlines people should know about right now? So right now, um, folks have until September 30th to fill out their form, whether that be online, by phone, by mail, or through an enumerator. Now, folks should know that starting today, if you have not responded to your census, there will be an enumerator visiting your house trying to collect that response with you. If for whatever reason you missed the enumerator, you can still respond on your own, again, online at my2020census.gov, by phone, um, and by mail. Um, and you'll have again until September 30th. And now Lisa, this happens every decade. Many in the immigrant community are not responding to the count because of efforts to include a question about citizenship. Is there any reason to worry? There is no reason to worry now um, for a couple of reasons. One, there is no question on citizenship. Two, there is no question around immigration status. So in essence, it is nearly impossible to get a sense of who is documented and who is not based on the form or to try to go after any individual for being documented or not. Again, that data is not asked. In addition to that, um, the, there are privacy protections of this data through what we know as Title 13 of the U.S. Code, which says that this data and individual information can can be used by the Bureau, the Census Bureau, only for statistical purposes, only to get a sense of how many people are in this country. It cannot be used for it. Uh, no individual data can be handed over to any other agency. And then the last piece is that um, if an enumerator, for whatever reason, were to share any individual data, they would be facing up to $250,000 in fines and up to five years in jail. So again, your data is safe and secure. What we want to make sure and do is hone in on our collective power and make sure that our community get the resources and political representation that we deserve. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Lisette Escobedo of the Naleo Educational Fund. Great seeing you again. Thank you, Carolina. More of you news after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. In Mexico, healthcare workers treating COVID-19 patients at one hospital have found a way to bring relief to those in treatment and their families. Diania Ponte has their story. In this hospital in the eastern region of the state of Mexico, this engineer created a mailing system to help patients with COVID-19 fight against loneliness. My daughter was born in this hospital. My mother died in this hospital. The first thing I thought was that people will not be able to be close to their relatives. That's why every day Angelica has this mailbox where she collects letters for the patients. Mariana Romero sends a daily message to her father. 
We miss you a lot. Remember, you are our superhero. Well, it is a situation of sadness and happiness. Medical assistants are in charge of reading the letters to patients, including to patients on ventilators. The patients always react. Fanny Rodriguez has seen the effect up close. You can see the happiness, and it is also noticed through the monitors. Even if they are sedated, they are listening. Sometimes she lends her phone to patients. Sometimes they want to inform their relatives that they have agreed to use a ventilator. The director of the hospital says that thanks to the mailing system and the dedication of hospital personnel, mortality rates have been reduced. Employees have postponed their vacations just to stay and take care of patients. Even the orderlies are fighting this war alongside the patients, organizing birthday celebrations and even shaving those in need. This virus doesn't give respite. People are very grateful for the dedication of the hospital staff in a country where there is a COVID-19 death every four minutes. Thanks for helping my dad. Reported by Jessica Zermeño, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.